And when you get there, you'll notice, first of all, that this is a very short psalm. <laughs> it's seven verses. Now, usually, you know, seven verses, you can read this out loud in 45 seconds. You can read it to yourself in about 20 seconds. Uh, so, since Bob Webb wasn't here this morning, and Wellington only had a minute, uh, and I now have to deal with seven verses until uh, Sunday school class is over. I uh, don't know how I'm going to do it, we're going to find out. Now, if it were Psalm 89, look at that, that's in two more weeks, that's 52 verses. Well, I'm going to give you the order to keep it short. That particular thing. Okay, Psalm 87. You ready? Uh, this psalm focuses on the city of Jerusalem. That's what this psalm is about. The entire psalm is about that. Particularly, God's plan to draw people from all different nations into the city of Jerusalem for the purpose of worshiping God. And uh, when that happens, the covenant that God made with Abraham will be fulfilled, that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, because the scripture says that the nations will flow in to the city of Jerusalem. The psalmist writes this psalm somewhere in the 5th or 6th century B.C. And okay, how do you know that? Well, we know that because in verse 4, you see the word Babylon. You see that? I'll make mention of Babylon. Well, Babylon, you know, as an empire, didn't exist until, uh, you know, there was the Assyrian Empire, and then came the Babylonian Empire. And so uh, Israel was in Babylonian captivity. So about 587, Babylon captured the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. And so this has to be written after that event, during the captivity or after the captivity. So we're going to say, you know, the 4th or 5th century, 5th or 6th century B.C. Next you'll notice the superscription over the psalm, Psalm 87. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah, uh, which means either they composed it or they are to sing it. And then the last two words in the superscription is that it's a song. So it's going to be a worship. It's going to be a song that's going to be sung during worship, probably in the temple, because the sons of Korah are temple musicians and singers. Okay? Wow. So either they composed it or they're going to sing it. Okay? So here's how I'm going to outline Psalm 87. Verses 1 through 3. We're going to call this God's love for Jerusalem. That's Psalm 1, Psalm 1 verse 1 through 3. God's love for Jerusalem. Verses 4 through 6. God's plan, plan for the nations. God's plan for the nations. And then verse 17 is a celebration when the nations come into Jerusalem. So that's our outline. So let's start off with the first section, God's love for Jerusalem. Look at verse 1. His foundation, some translations say his establishment, is in or on the holy mountain. Now immediately we're faced with a somewhat of an interpretation problem because in the Hebrew text, the word establishment or foundation is at the start of the sentence. There's no words that precede it in the Hebrew text. So 
All it says is foundation or establishment is in the holy mountain. So our translators add the words his establishment or his foundation is in the holy mountains or its foundation or establishment is in the holy mountain. So what is this foundation or the establishment that is in the holy mountains? We think, and I'm pretty much convinced that he's describing the city of Jerusalem. It's the city of Jerusalem that God has established. Notice in the holy mountains, literally in the mountains of holiness. Uh, Jerusalem is a city that is elevated and it is sanctified in the mountains of holiness in a sense. And it's God's dwelling place. That's what makes it holy. It's a holy city because God dwells there. His presence is there. So that's the location. Verse 1, we're going to say the location is Jerusalem. Now look at God's affection here in verse 2. It says this. The Lord, that is capital L-O-R-D. You see that? That's Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. The one who has agreed to take care of Israel and establish a covenant with her. The Lord loves the gates of Zion, simply another word for Israel, or city, or the city of Jerusalem, more than all the dwellings of Jacob. So the Lord loves Jerusalem more than all the other dwellings of Jacob, and Jacob refers to Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob changes his name to Israel. So God loves Jerusalem more than he loves all the other dwelling places of Jerusalem, of Israel. Now the Jews worshipped in many places before they worshipped in Jerusalem. Before Jerusalem was the capital. They worshipped in Dan. They worshipped in, in Shiloh. They worshipped in Bethel. But there's a special place in God's heart for Jerusalem. So this is his affection for the city. And this is where he has chosen to dwell. Okay? Third thing, we go from location to his affection to proclamation. Look at verse 3. Glorious things are spoken. You see that? This is why I call this proclamation. Glorious things are spoken of you, O what? City of God. So we see that this is what he's talking about. He's talking about Jerusalem. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. What glorious things? Now you notice after he says that, you see the word Selah there. You see that? So what he's telling, so the word Selah is some sort of word that's an indication to the singers and the musicians that they are to do something that allows probably the people to reflect on that statement. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. And now we have Maybe a musical interlude, there could be silence, there could be just, you know, the musicians, no more singing, and it allows the people to think about the glorious things that are spoken of the nation of Israel. So, what are those glorious things? Okay, well let's find out. The glorious things that are spoken of about the city of God. Look at verse 4. Now we get into God's plan for the nations. Okay, watch this. Here are the glorious things that are spoken. I will make mention. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Now these are the glorious things that are spoken of the city of God. First of all, and this is an oracle. 
This is God speaking. Notice who's doing the speaking. It's God doing the speaking. How do you know that? Because look what it says at the end of that sentence. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon of those who know what? Me. It's God speaking. So these are the things that God's speaking about the city of Jerusalem. And they have to do with other nations, which is very interesting. So this is an oracle. It's God. A prophetic word. When God speaks, God doesn't have a mouth like I do. He's not a man like we are. But he does speak. And in the Old Testament, he spoke through prophets, through the mouth of a prophet. So that's why we believe this section is an oracle. God speaking about the glories. Remember, that's what he's speaking about. The glories of the city of God. Okay, so first of all, look what he says. I will make mention. You see that in verse 4? Or I will keep in memory. Notice the words I will. Again, it's God speaking through a prophet. I will keep in my memory Rahab. Rahab. And Babylon to those who know me or among those who know me or they are those who know me. Now, what in the world is he talking about here that he's going to make mention of Rahab? Why would you talk about Rahab? Well, Rahab here actually is a cryptic word that represents Egypt. So you need to circle the word Rahab and put in your margin Egypt. And I'm going to show you that this is what Rahab means. He says, I will remember, think of Rahab as among those who know me. Okay, now look over this chapter, or the Psalm 89, the one that we just looked at a moment ago. When you look at the Psalm 89, look down at verse 10. Psalm 89 and verse 10. And look what it says. You have broken what? Rahab in pieces. As one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. So here we see that Rahab is an enemy that's been defeated. And Rahab represents Egypt. And I want to show this, so I want you to keep moving in your Old Testament to Isaiah. Keep moving in the right side of your Bible and to get Isaiah. And when you get to Isaiah, go to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. Okay, when you get there, look down at verse 7. Isaiah chapter 30. In verse 7. Here's what it says. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore I have called her name what? Rahab Pim Shebat. So Egypt is called Rahab. Okay? Does that make sense? So go back to Psalm 87. And look what he says here. I will make mention, or I will remember, this is what he's speaking now from verse 3, of the glories of the city of God. I will make mention, first of all, of Rahab, that's Egypt. Egypt was the first nation to enslave the Jewish people. And he says, I will make mention of Babylon, which is the latest nation to enslave the Jewish people. That makes sense now? Starts to make sense when you see it that way. Especially if this is written during or right after the Babylonian captivity. The first nation 
that enslaved the Jewish people, Egypt, the last nation to enslave the Jewish people, Babylon, and he says this, I will make mention or remember them as those who know me. Somehow these enemies of God are going to know him, and somehow it's in relationship to verse 3, the city of God, and glorious things are going to happen in the city of God. Now look at the rest of verse 4. Behold, and let's don't stop with Egypt and Babylon. Look, Philistia, Egypt's mortal enemy that she could never dislodge out of the land. Tyre, over on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, a merchant city. And Ethiopia, down to the south. These are not Israel's allies. He makes mention of them as well. And then he says, what does he say about all these people? This one was what? Born there. You see that? <laughs> this one was born there. Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Ethiopia were born there. Born where? Born where? Well, in context, it's in the city of God which is Jerusalem. He sees a day in which these people, this is like a prophecy, a prophetic oracle, uh, a picture of Jewish people coming to Jerusalem and settling down, not as enemies of God, but as people of God. And he uses the word born. They're going to be born there. Now, does he mean literally they're going to be born there? Or is he using it metaphorically? It's going to be just like if you were born in Jerusalem. You'd be a Jew. You'd be a child of God. And guess what? It's like they're being born there. Remember Jesus said you must be what? Born again. You know, not physically. He was speaking of it in a different sense. You have to be born into God's kingdom. Born again into God's kingdom. And here he describes these enemies of God who are going to be born into the nation of Israel in a sense. They're going to become part of God's people. It's a hard concept, but... They're no longer foes of God. In this oracle, this future plan that God has, he sees them as being God's people, which is very interesting. Now look at verse 5. And of Zion, it will be said, this one and that one is born in her. Meaning, each one of these is going to be born in her. City of Zion, not in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. You know what the Septuagint is? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Remember when Alexander the Great conquered the world? He made Greek the universal language. He wanted to build a great library in Alexandria, Egypt. And he went to his chief librarian and he said, I want to have the best library in the whole known world. What book should I have in it? And the chief librarian said, well, you need a copy of the Bible, the Jewish Bible. And Alexander the Great said, well, our people can't read Hebrew. He said, well, the librarian said, well, if you want a great book, you need to have the Bible. And so Alexander said, translate it into Greek. And so they translated the Old Testament into Greek. And that's known as the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible. 
And when the New Testament writers like Paul and these guys quote the Old Testament, they're always quoting from the Greek translation. Very rarely do they translate quotes from the Hebrew translation or the Hebrew Bible. They usually do it from that. And in the Greek translation, verse 5 reads like this. And of Mother Zion, it will be said, this one and that one is born in or of her. And so the writer sees Jerusalem as a mother who has children. And her children are not just Jewish children. Remember, Eve is called the mother of us all, right? And that's what the word Eve means, the mother of us all. Well, here what we have is just as Eve is the mother of us all, so Zion is the mother of God's people. Eve is the mother of all people. Zion is the mother of God's people. And each and every one, it says, will be born in or of her. It's interesting that Paul himself quotes this verse from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Galatians, we won't turn there, but in Galatia, they're having a real problem between Jew and Gentile believers. Should the Gentiles be required to keep, be circumcised and all keep the law? And there's a big debate going on. And so in Galatians 4.26, he says, But Jerusalem from above is the mother of us all, of Gentiles and Jews who are the people of God. And he quotes that concept, or that verse right there in verse 5. goes on to say in verse 5, And the Most High Himself shall establish her. This is all going to be God's doing. There's going to come a time when God is going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. And through Abraham's seed, the Jews, the nations are going to be blessed. And the scripture says there's going to be a day when the Gentiles flow into Jerusalem and they worship. And this is what this psalm is all about. Now look at verse 6. The Lord will record. Oh, this is sort of a graphic picture. Just imagine this, God doing this. The Lord will record when he registers his people. It's a picture of the Lord taking a census. Registering people. So he goes like this. Jim Ray. Jack Bird. And he registers these people. Puts them in a book. Sort of like the book of life, maybe. He puts a little notation next to it, each name. Mine, child of God. Joe Schmo from Kokomo. Not mine. He's taking a census of the world, and he's marking in his book those that are his and those that are not his. See, this is the Lord's story. So that's what is happening in verse 6. The Lord will record when he registers the people. And he says, this one was born there. Was born where? In Jerusalem. <laughs> this one's by child. Not literally born in Jerusalem, but in a sense, born as a child of God, re is recognized as one of my people. And then it says, Selah. Hey, stop and just think about that for a moment. Contemplate that thought for a moment. What it means for an enemy of God, a mortal enemy of God, like Egypt who enslaved the Jewish people, Babylon who enslaved the Jewish people, who actually turn and become 
children of God. I mean, it's an unbelievable claim that he's describing here. So now we come to the celebration. Verse 7. Both the singers and the players, some translations say dancers, but what we're talking about is worshipers, will say, and here's what they sing when all this comes about. They say, all my springs are in you, Jerusalem. All my springs or all my fountains are in you, Jerusalem. Now what does a spring or what is the fountain that he's describing here? There's not a commentator that knows. But they're guesses. It could mean that the spring could be used to mean source of life. It could mean to be all my offspring are in you, Jerusalem, uh, because Jerusalem is the mother of us all. But what he's describing is when the nations come to worship God and they have life. And so he says, the one thing that we know, whatever the spring means, we know it's in Jerusalem. Is that right? We do know that much. So, there's the psalm. Now, I want to show you how this is fulfilled. I want you to take your Bible and turn over to Revelation 21 and see if the language that you've just read in Psalm 87 doesn't make sense in light of Revelation chapter 21. So turn over there. So we'll look at 21 and let's pick up at verse, let's say 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me and he said, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And just to jump down to the verse 23. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations, Babylon, Egypt, so on, and the nations of those who are saved, delivered, shall walk in the light, in its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory, the glories of the city, remember we talked about that, will bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates, you saw that in that song, shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be no means entering it enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are registered, written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So there is the picture of this prophecy being fulfilled. And look at chapter 22 and verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of the water of life. Maybe this is the spring of life that in the city. He showed me a pure water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
And in the middle of the street, and on the other side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruit, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of what? Of the nations. So, one day we're going to see that the kingdom of God is going to come on earth, and this covenant that God had with Abraham will be fulfilled in Psalm 87 is the oracle of the prediction of that day. Amen on that? And now I want to say a word about the Supreme Court. May I? Yes. Since I got a couple extra minutes? Yes. We'll make seven statements about the Supreme Court and the decision. I wasn't in the early service, so I have no idea what was said there. But this is my take on it. Number one, this was a legal decision. Okay? The Supreme Court made a legal decision. It did not change the morality, determine what is right and wrong as far as morality is concerned. Any more than when the Supreme Court made a decision that women could have abortions at will, that didn't make abortion right, did it? Okay. So that's the first thing you need to realize is, number one, limited to a legal decision. In the eyes of God, the things that were wrong last Wednesday, last Thursday, are still wrong today. Absolutely nothing's changed. Okay? So that's just a statement that you don't want to make there. Okay, number, so I'm going to call that number two. Number three, it's important that we must not panic in this situation. We have advocates, and I'm just thinking of the Liberty Institute with Kelly Shackelford up in Plano, uh, and other organizations like that who are going to protect the rights, do everything they can to protect the religious and First Amendment rights of evangelical Christians who oppose this. So there's nothing you can do. Don't worry about it. There are people who are very highly trained that are going to do everything they possibly can. Now, other than praying, there's some things that we can do. We have an election coming up. We say this every time. And oftentimes we just decide to vote or not vote. It's important that we get the people in who are going to make the next appointments in the Supreme Court. So if we don't do that, we have no one else to blame but ourselves. Okay. Next thing I want to say is that we are called to be salt and light in this world. If the salt loses its savor, it's useless. And I'm afraid pretty much the church has lost its savor in many respects. We are called to be salt and light, and now is not the time to compromise our ethical standards so that we'll be, quote, on the right side of history. You know what I mean? Don't go along with the gang, you know, and give up all your moral... And there are people that are doing that. There are Christian leaders right now that are coming out and they're making statements in favor of this because they'll look like they're going to be on the wrong side of history, that they're angry people if they don't do this. Not a time for us to compromise our ethical beliefs in order to stay in step. Our mission remains exactly what it's always been 
And that is to preach the gospel, to feed the poor, take care of the poor, feed the hungry, and love people, and even love our enemies. That's one thing that Christians usually forget in these situations like this. We can get very ugly in situations like this. It is counterproductive. It doesn't do anything to help the situation. It just strengthens the resolve on both sides. But people can be changed if they're loved. And the Spirit of God can melt people's hearts and change them. So it's important that we do what we're called to do. Next thing I want to say is that America is not the kingdom of God. When you start equating America and the kingdom of God, you are in for a rude awakening because we are not the kingdom of God. America has done some pretty bad things. And we've been on the wrong side of moral decisions in many cases. We supported slavery for years. The Supreme Court supported slavery for years. Don't forget that. Was that the right decision? No, it was the wrong decision. Do we have slavery now? We don't have slavery now. The Supreme Court supported abortion, didn't it? America, as a nation, supported abortion. That was the law of the land. And yet today there are less abortions performed than in decades, even though it's still the law of the land. And now the Supreme Court has supported or legalized, you might as well say, homosexuality, which at the time was illegal. And so there is hope. But just don't think that you know, if we save America, we're, we save the kingdom of God. America is not the kingdom of God. America is more like the Roman Empire. In Jesus' day, uh, the Roman Empire was as bad or worse than we than America. And uh, Christians had to learn to navigate in that setting. Didn't they? I mean, they were killing babies. They were doing every kind of crazy thing that you can think of, but Christians had to learn to navigate in that setting. I want to give you some good news. Christianity is still in existence. The Roman Empire is no longer in existence. Long after America has been dead and buried, guess what? The church and Christianity will remain. So we need to realize that. Okay? The kingdom of God hasn't changed. And as we know from Psalm 87, in the end, the kingdom of God will encompass the whole earth. So we need to not be frightened, not panic, not become ugly, but we need to walk in faith, need to walk and demonstrate love, and we need to walk in hope, knowing that in the end, Jesus' words will prevail. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So I just thought this is, this is something I just jotted down this morning, right before I got in my car. And I just thought, you know, I wanted to say a word that made a little bit of sense, so that we don't overreact to these things. Bad day in the history of America? Well, we think it is. I'm sure other people think it's a good day. But let's don't react, okay? and uh, realize that, that before the Supreme Court made its decision, 
guess what? You were there, and guess where you are now after the Supreme Court made the decision? You're right here. And has your Christianity changed one bit yet? No, it hasn't. But there should be a wake-up call for us now to go out and be the salt and light of the world. You know, and do, because a lot of the problems that we have in a society occur when the church stops being the salt and light. So we need to make an effort to do that once again. Lord, thank you that we have a great word. We have revelation. And we learn that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of of the Lord and His Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we have a responsibility to be a light to this world. And when we aren't, and we're just happy about doing our own little things, and harping, and ranting, and accumulating wealth, and not looking out for others, and reaching out to the marginal, and preaching the gospel with power. Uh, this is what happens. Darkness and evil spread. So Lord, we do have to bring it back to our, as much as our responsibility for what's happening this, as to the Supreme Court. They were reflecting where our country's going. And that's not good news. It says very little for the church and our effectiveness in this part of the world called America. The Lord help us to realize we have a great responsibility, but help us not to be heartless, help us not to compromise, help us not to give in, but help us to be bold, not in attacking, not in anger, but bold in our actions of love. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Thank you.